Today's episode of the Mets Up Podcast is sponsored by Anchor. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. First off, that's huge. And that's what we use here on the Mets Up Podcast. I highly suggest it. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your own phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many other streaming services. And you're allowed to make money from your podcast from day one with no minimum listenership. It's literally everything you need to make a podcast in one place. So make sure you guys download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. What is up, Mets fans? Welcome back to episode number 84 of the Mets Up Podcast, presented to you by the Seven Line. Big weekend for the Mets. Home opener, got to play the Diamondbacks. A nice little three-game series leading up to the big Giants series coming this week. Of course, we're going to talk about what happened in these games this past weekend against the Diamondbacks, as well as preview the Giants series in today's episode, as well as big shout-out to everybody. We had the religious trifecta over the weekend. We had Easter, Passover, Ramadan. We got you all covered. Happy, what, happy all of them to you. Happy holidays. I think that's, I don't know how many times you can really say that in a year, but this weekend we could. Happy holidays to everyone. We hope you enjoyed it. Of course, Mets baseball, though, it's, it's going to take a little precedent about what we're talking about in today's episode. Like we said, three games of the home opener. A lot of great stuff going on. A lot of things to cover. Let's go ahead and jump into it. Make sure you guys are following us on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, at Mets Up. You'll be able to find the video version of everything on the YouTube channel. If you're listening to us, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, wherever you find them, you'll be able to find us. Drop us a five-star rating. Drop us a review. And of course, we got to bring in the boy, James Shiano. Jeter had no range. How you doing, James? Great, man. Look at us. Messed up podcast. Getting our listeners an episode the morning after Easter. Both of their parents' house. Who, who could do it better than us? Both of the boys are in Westfield for this one. Weirdly enough, we're within like a mile of each other which is also kind of like the distance when we're in New York as well. Somehow managed to say just as close. <laughs> and we do have a lot to talk about. First, let's talk about opening day because the boys, outside of the game itself, the boys had an opening day. Yeah. If you guys weren't following us on social media, we got into the owner's box. Yes, Steve Cohen's box. We were watching games, chit-chatting with the rich folk that were hanging out in there. Hank Azaria, The Simpsons. Bethany Frankel, Skinny Girl, Margaritas. I'm throwing out all these names out here. Me and James were hanging around the people that, honestly, we're just not even remotely in the same tax bracket as. No, hey, tax day too. Another thing to mention for this week. <laughs> but yeah, Mark and I were rubbing elbows with some wonderful people. And this was a owner's box, but it was clear. It became clear that there were multiple owner's boxes. We didn't meet Steve. We didn't meet Steve. If we ever met Steve, you guys would certainly know. But it was a surreal day. It was a wonderful. Uh, it was a wonderful way to kick off a season that should be very big for us. Yeah, we got to meet uh, Mrs. Cohen. Mm-hmm. We got to meet the daughter Sophia. We got to meet a lot of the Cohen conglomerate, which was really nice. We got to hang out with some people, like you said, rubbing elbows, drinking beers, having drinks. It was a fantastic time, honestly. Pretty pretty high point of the weekend, I gotta say, hanging out in Steve Cohen's box. Technically, his his box was like above us yeah. in that he was hanging out in the box above. But this was very much the Cohen box as well, right on field level, right behind home plate. You probably can't ask for a better view in the stadium. No, literally not. But this was the social box. There seems to be like the real box, and this was the social box. And we're very happy to be part of the social box. Also, first first day breaking out the new season of Metzed Up stickers, and glad to say that. Sophia Cohen, just like Mark, me, our parents, put one right on the back of her phone case, which which was 
shocking at the moment where you're like, we gave it to her like, yeah, you know, Metsa podcast, it's our podcast we do. She goes, oh, okay, I'm going to put it right on my phone. No hesitation, Swap. bang, slaps it right on the back. Granted, she might have a phone case for every sure. new day of the week. Yeah. That's a possibility, but. But still, just the idea that, the idea that Sophia Cohen, without even hesitating, put our sticker on the back of her phone. That gives me such a warm feeling inside my stomach. Yeah, I mean, we were buzzing. We were buzzing. I got in there and I was like, what is going on? What is happening? The reason we were in there, we cannot yet share with you guys, but just for a little insight of what's going on in the Mets Up podcast world, some big things could be happening. And as soon as it does, you guys will know all about it. So keep an eye out on the socials. Keep an eye out all over the place because hopefully we do have some big news coming here to the Mets Up podcast. Now, as for the game, opening day was great as well on the field as well as it was off the field. Before we hit the game, I want to talk about Tom Seaver, Tom Seaver statue. Oh, go for it. I was at opening day with my entire family. My dad, growing up a Mets fan, was a very big Tom Seaver fan. My mom also was a big Tom Seaver fan, mostly because he was just a handsome gentleman. The ceremony was a really wonderful time. We got Again, my dad was very, very, very into the ceremony. We pulled up to City Field before 10 a.m., about 9.55. And Mark knows that me, half my personality is just being late for things. So my whole family kind of rides with that same vibe as well. So being there that early, just it was really, really hammered home how important this this uh, ceremony was. And just like looking around the crowd, I'm sure you guys saw the pictures on social media. There were probably a couple of thousand people standing out there in between the uh, Jackie Robinson Rotunda on Jackie Robinson Day, which was very nice that he was incorporating the ceremony as well. And this was something that I do know that the Mets reached out to the Seaver family about being like, do you feel okay sharing the ceremony with Jackie Robinson? Because this happened to be the home opener after the lockout pushed the home opener back two weeks. And they were beyond thrilled about that, which is a wonderful thing. But the place was jam-packed, Mets fans everywhere, especially the Mets fans of an older demographic. I met the source, Stu Finer, of a... of the barstool sports advisors there absolute legend i'm jealous you got to meet Stu. i Stu is one of the few people that can fire me up at any given moment yes absolutely absolutely and Stu, but Stu, like people were kind of giving Stu, like yeah Stu, the source shouting him out and he was giving one of these it's very solemn see stop see meant meant a lot to a lot of mets fans out there and this was truly an emotional situation howie rose gave a great speech steve cohen went up there and said some beautiful words he also smirked a little bit when he took gave a steve cohen great gave some credits to the wool ponds because they did originally start this project even though it was it was 20 30 40 years too late and then he took it over of course and he gave credit to the wool ponds and the entire crowd booed and you could see steve <laughs> pass a bit of a wry smile past uh, as as this was going on but Mike Piazza came up to speak, the Queensboro president came up to speak, and then finally Nancy Seaver gave just a heartfelt rendition of how much the Mets mean to Tom and how the organization held so true with their family for so long, surrounded by both of her daughters. There was at least 30% of the grown men around me were crying, literally. My mother was crying, my dad looked like he was a little bit teary. There was, it was waterworks everywhere. It was, really, it was a really beautiful ceremony, and I'm very happy that Tom Seaver's memory is now going to be commemorated forever into the field. The only thing that was wrong with the ceremony was the fact that Tom Seaver couldn't be here, here to see it. Yeah. Now that's that's the part that does, you know, make it a little bit bittersweet here mm-hmm. is that it's finally about time the Mets immortalized Tom Seaver. It, you know, they got the jersey number retired and all that, but everyone, you can't talk about the New York Mets without mentioning Tom Seaver and if there was ever a player in Mets history to get a statue outside of the stadium. It's Tom Seaver. So it's about damn time that they got that done. I've not gotten a chance to see the statue yet. Uh, I was not one of the people who was at the ceremony. I was instead tailgating with the seven line and having adult beverages because that's how I roll on opening day. 
But it's going to be there. I, I was in no rush to see it. I honestly want to take my time and be able to take a look at it, take pictures, not be crowded around with everybody. Like you said, there's like 3,000 people there. It was packed. A small guy. I'm, I'm not getting a picture with the Seaver statue on opening the day. The pictures from overhead almost made it look like there were more people there than I had thought. Like, I was I was comparing it to my sister, who I was with the game, too, that, like, this was, like, a music festival for old men. Because my dad was, like, <laughs> wedging around, like, trying to get closer, like, trying to get near Howie. And any time, like, any of the official Mets people walked through the crowd to get closer to the stage, like, people went ballistic. Like, Gary Cohen walked through it. Everyone's like, Yeah! Ron Darling went through. My dad's like, Ronnie! It's like, this was a music festival for old men. But it was a very nice, nice way to start the day. And it got the day started right because Mets fans were feeling good. Mm-hmm. Mets fans were feeling great. You get into the stadium. You got your Jackie Robinson shirt, which was also mm-hmm. maybe one of the better shirts they've given oh, yeah. away. No, no sponsorships anywhere. Mm-hmm. Clean t-shirt. You could wear it and not feel like you're shilling for whatever company sponsored the shirt that you are wearing. And it really, like we said, got the vibe started. Beautiful day as well. Beautiful. 60 degrees, sunny. You couldn't ask for a better day. Yeah, as good as it gets. And City Field, from the outset of this game, was absolutely rocking. Rocking at levels that I haven't felt City Field at in a long time. I do remember last year, that June game against the Padres, the first game with full crowds after COVID with DeGrom versus Blake Snell on a Friday night. That was rocking too. But this was this was, there was a different energy in the air at City Field this game. And also there were major changes made all over the ballpark that we noticed like very quickly. All of the screens are brand new. All of the animations are brand new. The out-of-town scoreboard is brand new. Uh, the video uh, effects in City Field have been very seriously beefed up this offseason. Yeah, the only thing that hasn't changed is the big scoreboard in center field, but I think that's going to change going into next year, and we're going to have the largest one in all of Major League Baseball. Everything looks great around the stadium. Also, did you notice, I'm because we talk about the batter's eye a lot, did you notice that the, the M&M party deck, whatever it is, out in left field, normally it's blue with a lot of the M&Ms or Party City stuff going on behind it. It was a matte black this time, with only the scoreboard being the only thing that wasn't black. We talked about a hitter's eye, and we talked about distractions, and I've talked about, like, you know, the apple sometimes sticking out from behind uh, center field is something that could be a distraction, or the fact that there's so many different lines. I think the left field painted black like that. I think there's a real reason. I think it's Zosmer getting behind that batter's eye issue. That's a really good point. I didn't even notice that. That'd be something we could definitely keep an eye on next few weeks as the Mets play more home games and create more of a sample for City Field's 2022 park factor. And honestly, it did help in this game. Of course, we will get a little bit more into detail of what happened, but we got to start off with Chris Bassett. Absolutely. Because Chris Bassett, what a beast this guy is. We were so excited about him coming into the season, and he's exceeded all my expectations. Exceeded them running away, flying colors. He got into a little bit of trouble in the first inning, but from that point on, there was a Cattell Marte double. He absolutely cruised afterwards. From that Cattell Marte double in the first inning with one out, he did not allow a hit, another hit, until the Dalton Varsho solo home run in the sixth inning. So Chris Bassett went almost a complete five innings without allowing a hit and only allowing two base runners during that time. He wound up on the day throwing six innings, got six strikeouts, only gave up one earned run, two hits, and two walks, which home opener from a guy who's like the meat, the bulk, the oatmeal of your rotation. This is as good as it's going to get. And Chris Bassett is really showing off. A, he's flashing a ceiling that we kind of alluded to when the trade went down and hoped that would be there, and it seems very apparent that he's going to be able to reach that and possibly more as we move forward here. Yeah, his game has been elevated coming to New York. We knew how good he was in Oakland, and it seems like, like you said, all we need is a little Jeremy Hefner, a little sprinkle of the Hefner magic, and this guy's game has gotten better, without a doubt. And what's crazy, too, is he throws, what, like six pitches and all of them well? He threw six different pitches in this game on Friday, and the Cutter led the way at 37% usage, followed by his sinker at 23%, and his four-seam fastball 15%. So in this game, where Chris Bassett was so incredibly effective, didn't give up any hits at all, got plenty of strikeouts and plenty of whiffs, 
he threw 75% fastballs. That's an unbelievable number. Then came in his curve at 12%. And even that pitch, which we've talked about being one of his out pitches, he didn't even really seem to have a feel for it. He had trouble locating it early and kind of forgot about it until he got closer to the third time through the batting order. But all said and done, he had 13 total whiffs in the game to go along with six strikeouts. Eight of those came on his cutter, a pitch that he barely even used in his first start against Washington, which is even more fascinating about this Chris Bassett outing. He had came into this game with a completely different plan of attack for the Diamondbacks hitters than he had for the Nationals. And I do want to say that those are the two teams, because those objectively are two of the worst teams in baseball. So Mets fans have to realize that, and we're talking about all these incredible pitching performances by our guys, but... Bassett threw 25% sliders last Saturday in that game against the Nationals, compared to just four this past Friday against the Diamondbacks. And in that game, he combined for just 31% of cutters and sinkers, compared to the 60% he threw on Friday afternoon. So it's just so fascinating and incredibly amazing that he can walk onto the mound and be a completely different pitcher than whatever the team could possibly have video on or possibly have game plan for, even the last time the fans have seen him. Or even he could be planning to go out and be that same pitcher, but he just doesn't have a feel. And he has the ability to pivot when things aren't there, feel right. And I'm very excited to see what we have in Chris Bassett going forward. There's a lot of the same things we said about Marcus Stroman last year. where The tool bag is so deep that you can find different ways to beat teams. And it's really wonderful watching Chris Bassett do that every five days. I think what's sick about him too is like you said, like he threw like the 75% essentially fastballs between the cutter, four seam and sinker. Yeah. And what's really sick about him is he tunnels the pitches so well that when you have three pitches that essentially look like the exact same mm-hmm. halfway to the plate, and then they go three different directions, mm-hmm. left, center, and right ever so slightly, that makes a huge difference. That makes it so hard. And that's why a guy like him can get away with throwing as many fastballs as we say as when we talk about other pitchers at times we want them to mix up the pitches a little bit more Chris Bassett's repertoire allows him and the way that he throws and tunnels pitches allows him to get away with stuff like this and this, again it gets the Diamondbacks lineup like yeah. you said that does need to be mentioned because Mets fans we definitely do at some times need to take a little bit of a deep breath the team's playing incredibly well and Bassett's looked great of course against the lower competition mm-hmm. still the Mets were able to get the job done and what was great behind this great pitching performance by Chris Bassett was the bats came alive the bats really got hot and I mean I know there's some guys that did stuff a little bit earlier but you know what I have to mention right off the rip Robinson Cano yep the game that I go to (laughs) the first home game of the year my favorite player Robinson Cano goes yard opposite field 400 feet yeah I mean you guys knew that was gonna happen you knew Robinson Cano was gonna have a day if I was there and the best part is this home run happened the exact time that we told fans to come meet up with us by the Shea Bridge in the top of the fourth inning of this game. And Robinson Cano with the home run the second we got down there. And there were two kids around us. I forgot their names because I was honestly, I was kind of feeling myself by that point. And we were, this is when we were working on our, a whole other situation. So I was like kind of floating in thin air, but that was a funny situation. In this game, Robinson Cano had three hard hit balls and all were in the air. Yeah, I mean, that, that's kind of where the road ends a little bit for Robinson Cano's yeah. series. He did have a great game one. I'll give him props when it's due. Robinson Cano played really well and he was a big part of this offensive you know, outcome as well. So was Jeff McNeil. I mean, how nice is it to see Jeff McNeil swinging the bat like he has been this year? He looks like the old Jeff McNeil. I'm so happy I didn't get rid of this guy. I'm so happy because he really does make this lineup a whole lot deeper, a whole lot stronger, and a whole lot more difficult to get out. And it's just, he's done so many things to help us this early in the season. Just this series alone, when we didn't even mention it as the show started, it turned out the Mets had a little bit of a COVID outbreak on Friday morning. Yeah, forgot about that. Totally forgot about that. But Brandon Nimmo and Mark as you guys know by now, are both on the COVID IL, did not play the series, thrusting Jeff McNeil into the leadoff spot. Because I would say those two guys are probably leadoff one and leadoff two. So now we got Jeff McNeil leadoff three. And in this series, in total, he went four for 10 
with three walks, two runs scored, and a stolen base. Like, what's better than that out of your leadoff spot? And he played a great left field, which we'll mention in game two. Mm -hmm. Uh, He played a really, really good left field to the point where, like, we spoke about this at times before, but McNeil's ability to play second base and play the outfield as well as he does, that alone makes him so valuable on his team that could use a player like that, essentially play a middle infield position and the outfield. Like, that's... It's not something you find too often in Major League Baseball for players. No, and he does them both incredibly well. Adds an entirely new element to this. Not a new element. He adds an entirely different element to this roster than most other players on it. And this is something that we drove home in the offseason. It was talked about him being traded. That was one of our most listened to episodes ever. And I think it's because the Jeff McNeil case was so fascinating this offseason. And not that either of us wanted him to be traded, but like we just knew that it would be very hard based on the free agents that were available and the types of players the Mets had available to them on their roster and in their minor leagues on their 40 man that there were going to be few other guys who could do what Jeff does. And now that we're seeing him with seems to be his powers back, I wouldn't want it any other way. No, it's absolutely great, especially when he's you know leading off and getting on base like he was this series. Also, you boys know we love a good sacrifice fly. Pete Alonso, a sacrifice fly. I two mean, of them. We'll, no, two, that's right, two of them, two of them. I think the second one happened when we were in the suites. Yeah, so, you yeah. Know, kind of a little bit of a blurry mind there, but a <laughs> couple sack flies. We're there for dingers only. Yeah, dinger, dingers only. A couple sack flies, though. You know, that gets us excited. Yeah, especially when it was that one in foul territory in the first inning and the wild man Joey Cora just sends him. Crazy, man. He's insane. Like you said, he probably has never stopped at a yellow light. He probably just runs red lights. We talked about him being stabbed before when we had his introductory episode. This guy's insane, and I think I might know why. It's because he sends everyone at third base at every single moment possible. He wants you to make a play, and so far, it's kind of worked for the Mets. Especially against, again, these poor teams that we've been playing, especially poor teams on the defensive side of the ball. You can put your team in a situation where the other team needs to make a perfect play to get it out. And against teams like the Diamondbacks, like seven times out of ten, it's probably not going to happen. And how about our boy, Francisco Lindor? Everybody, I'm going to curse right now, so cover your ears. Shut the fuck up with the Lindor hate. <laughs> this dude is so fucking good. We had someone sitting behind us, uh, me and my dad, at the stadium. And when Lindor in the first inning had like a little bit of a weak ground ball that was almost a double play, he went, ah, here he goes again, $300 million for this. Are you kidding me? I was looking for him. I was hunting him down in the ninth inning when Lindor hit his second home, or eighth inning when Lindor hit his second home run to really put the game away. Both sides of the plate as well, by the way. I was looking for him. I wanted to say, don't don't you cheer for him. You can't cheer for him if you're going to hate him when he hits a ground ball out. It's baseball. The best players of all time fail seven out of ten times. I can't wrap my head around it when Lindor in the first inning of a game makes a ground ball and you're ready to ride the guy and then he hits two home runs the rest of the game. Like The way he's played this season is the Lindor we expected. This is the Lindor we paid for. He's been unbelievably good. And Lindor's hustle even not wind up in that double play, got that sack fly home in that first inning. But that's beside the point because he had two monster home runs. The first one when we were hanging out in the suite, fifth inning, knocks Zach Davies out of the game. That's the tank job. And then the eighth inning to just completely blow the roof off of City Field, going back to back with Starling Marte to just send the City Field faithful into an actual frenzy. Like that was, I don't know, like we, I had a few drinks at that point, but it just felt like I was like floating in the air when that second home run left the park and the place was jumping. Oh, sure. It was pure bliss. That was, like you said, there was a lot of energy in the stadium this weekend, and I'll talk a little bit more about a game, too, because I was there as well. But the crowd was eager, eager, eager for anything to cheer about, eager for this Mets team. There was a different feel. It feels like the Mets fans know that we're really good. It feels like they know that we have high expectations, and not that we expect perfection, but boy, oh boy, are we excited when this team plays well, and you could hear it in the cheers with every single thing. I mean, the Starling Marte home run, people were going wild for that. He crushed the ball as well. 
But I, I love seeing that all the guys made some sort of an impact here on opening day, whether it was on the mound, in the field, on the base paths, at the plate. It was a very much a team effort. Yeah, very t- much a team effort. I mean, that's going to happen when you score 10 runs. You limit the team to just one through eight innings. I know Sean Reed Foley let a few in in the ninth inning when you just, you're just begging a guy to throw strikes and get out of a game with a nine-run lead. But that was not going to take away the shine off this game. This was an incredible way to start the season at home. Yep. High for the boys, high for the Mets. We were feeling really good going into game two. And honestly, on the pitching side, again, let's keep talking about it. My goodness, the pitching has been so good, especially from the starting rotation side. I, sh- I should say that's really the part that's shined the most. The bullpen, we'll get into it here in game two. But Carlos Carrasco on the bump. My goodness, this is a completely new Carlos Carrasco. You want to talk about, we're waiting for Francisco Lindor. Here he is. Here's Carlos Carrasco, everybody. This is the pitcher we were waiting for from him. It's funny you say brand new Carlos Carrasco, because this is really just vintage Carlos Carrasco returning to form after after a couple of years of, of being uh, having some injuries. He now seems to have gotten over. This is just new Carlos Carrasco for Mets fans, what you really should have said, because yeah, holy crap, is this guy back, 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 back. I think this is this is also just me being a fancy baseball nerd and being very on top of Carlos Carrasco for like five or six years running and understanding that when this man has his changeup, there's almost no stopping him. Our guy had eight strikeouts in five innings. The changeup had a silly, putrid, disgusting ten whiffs on sixteen swings, and the Ew. and the <laughs> and the fastball even got five whiffs on sixteen swings. He was throwing every single thing low in the zone, and that was really helping his fastball, his changeup, and his slider, similar to Bassett tunneling. All play completely off each other. All look exactly the same three-quarters of the way to the plate. And the fastball sitting there for the called strikes, getting some whiffs. The changeup ducking out of the zone, and the slider just missing the barrel. And if this is what we're going to get from Carlos Carrasco this year, I'm going to be over the moon. Like, I'm going to dance in the streets. Like, this is the guy who's going to change the entire complexion of this team. And I'm really happy that the guy who I always knew was in there, and I told Mets fans to wait for and be patient with last year, actually looks like he might be back. No, it's it's so nice because like last year, we all know the first run fiasco that Carlos Carrasco had, or first inning, first run fiasco that he had. And it was like, eh, what's going on here? We're getting a little worried. Like this is happening every game and even the spring saw it a little bit. But these first two starts this year, Granted, he did give up, you know, that nuke to Nelson Cruz in his first start, but he's looked great otherwise. Like, that's the only run he's given up, right? I was literally about to say, that's the only run Carlos Carrasco has given up all year is a first-inning home run to Nelson Cruz that, like, got over the wall by just a hair. Yeah, I mean, he's just been so fantastic. It's huge to the future of this team. As long as Carlos Carrasco is healthy and looking like this, the rotation just gets that much deeper. And the Mets, right now, on paper, statistically, have the best rotation in baseball. And that's without Jacob deGrom. That's a crazy sentence. It's all very good and well. But sadly, there was not much other goodness to talk about in this game besides for Carrasco's gem. I will talk about Jeff McNeil's catch, though, crashing up against the wall. I talked about how good he was in the outfield, and this game in particular, he made some really nice plays. He's been getting some really good reads and jumps on the ball. For a guy who's supposed to be a primary infielder, you wouldn't know it if you watched him play left field. He does a really good job out there, and what I thought was great, I talked about the energy, the hype, everything going on at the stadium. One, McNeil, I think, is a crowd favorite to begin with. I think every Mets fan loves Jeff McNeil, whether you're an old school or a new school guy. You can appreciate the way he plays the game and how he wears his heart on his sleeve, and after he made that catch, he basically got a curtain call in the outfield. <laughs> he made the catch. Everyone went fucking crazy. It was as if the Mets just got a walk-off win. It was so loud when he crashed into the wall and made that catch. And then he throws the ball in. Two seconds, everyone's cheering, standing up. Jeff McNeil. <laughs> Jeff McNeil. He finally acknowledges the crowd. The boys, yeah! Like, it was crazy. Like, I've never in my lifetime as a Mets fan seen that reaction for a play where you... It's not even a robbing of a home run. He just crashed into the wall, made a nice catch, like, to stop a double. 
But Jeff McNeil, he gets all the hype. Everyone's loving him right now. They're drinking the Kool-Aid, and so am I. I love that the Mets fans are getting Jeff's back because we just saw how much he struggled last year and how much that hurt him. Like, it was so obvious. And you used to talk about Jeff McNeil wearing his emotions on his sleeve. Jeff McNeil wears his emotions directly on his face. Like, he screams and he curses and he throws things. And it's, it's, it sucks because we've seen how good this guy can be and we've seen how important he is to this team, especially this roster. I'm going to keep driving that home. He adds a different element to this roster that we really don't get otherwise. And he's been a good outfielder his entire career. Like, he's quite the good second baseman as well. But Jeff McNeil is just a damn ball player. And that's the best part about him. But unfortunately, that's about where the good stuff ends here for the Mets uh, in this game. It wasn't that they necessarily played bad. Just didn't play good. The Diamondbacks beat them, of course. And it all got started with the seventh inning. And this is going to be a recurring theme. I just I just have a feeling that we're going to talk about this. Because we're now, what, three episodes into the 2022 yeah, season? Three for three. And it's been a, yeah, three for three. Joelle, clean sixth inning, mm-hmm. shut up everyone around us, yeah. but he comes out for the seventh, and it was the face, I believe, either Seth Beer or Pavin Smith. Seth Beer. Seth Beer walked him, no, right? Ro- walked him. Roped a single. Roped a single, okay. Yeah, I, he had a great day. Seth Beer, by the way, the fact they hit him like seventh in that lineup when everyone hits about 120 is <laughs> criminal. Tori Lovello should be fired, but that should have been something that happened a few years ago. Anyway, he came out for the seventh after sitting down, which it just seems like is the kiss of death for Mets relievers, is sitting on the bench. I don't know what is going on there, but they can't come out and be effective for the first batter they face. He walked him. He gets taken out of the game. Lugo comes in, and Lugo looked bad. There's no way around it. He looked bad, and I'm concerned. No, he looked really awful. He just promptly gave up a home run to Sergio Alcantara, who should really never be hitting home runs ever in Major League Baseball games. Then he walked Dalton Varsho, and then he let another RBI double, Yanni Hernandez. These are just things that can't happen, and this is a really scary outing for Lugo because we saw his velocity down again. It wasn't as low as it was in Philadelphia, but it was still lower than his yearly averages last year and where we've seen him sit most of his career. And he made an adjustment that we have particularly both been hammering home where he basically was only throwing fastballs and curveballs. The two pitches that have always been most effective for him, just like the bare bones of his repertoire, what makes him great and how he can kind of deconstruct what he's been trying to do and maybe get himself back on track. And of course... One of the only sinkers he threw in the entire outing was right down Broadway to Alcantara that he sent out of the yard. And that, in and of itself, not executing a pitch that he's rarely throwing and putting us, in, putting us behind late in this game is just not what we want from a guy who's supposed to be one of the better relievers in this pen. Yeah, I was in the bathroom, actually, when the, the home run happened to Sergio Alcantara. Oh, so it's your, Thank it's your God. fault. It could have been. It very well <laughs> could have been my fault there. Uh, your boy had to use the bathroom. Rain Randazzo was like, yeah, that pitch was just right down the middle. Right down like, the middle. It's just literally right down the middle, and it was like 91, which was concerning too because we know Lugo's not a 99, 98 guy, but he usually sits in that 94, 95-ish range with the fastball. That was a little bit concerning that he was throwing slow, and I even remember like a couple you know appearances before. I was like, he just doesn't really have that zip. He wasn't really sharp. I don't think it's an injury thing. I hope not because, again, Seth Lugo is important to this team. We need him to get back on track in order for this team to be as good as they should be. But when you give up a home run to Sergio Alcantara, who in 900 games throughout all the levels of minor league baseball, whatever he's done, foreign baseball, I'm including winter leagues here for Sergio Alcantara, 22 home runs in his 908 games of any sort of professional baseball played. I mean, you can't, you can't give up a home run. I, if you could have given me 1,000 players in Major League Baseball to hit a home run before Sergio Alcantara, I would never pick him. There's no way. He's, he's horrible. I don't know how else to say it. I couldn't. If you would have said... Bet your life that Sergio Alcantara <laughs> hits a home run here. I would have bet it. I want to extend my sincerest apologies to Sergio Alcantara's friends and family for the, the massive ricochet shot he's getting in this segment of the Messed Up Podcast. Yeah, but Jerry's a nice guy. He doesn't deserve all this. But he, there's no reason he should be hitting home runs. 
off of Seth Lugo. And also, I'm hating, hating that early in the season, Joel Rodriguez has just become the absolute GOAT of Mets Twitter and the scapegoat for anything that bad that ever happens to this team. The guy's stuff looks good. His velocity was down this game, similarly to Seth Lugo, but I'm just getting chalked it up to being early in the season. Like, the stuff still looks good. Like, the changeup looks good. The breaking stuff looks good. Like, I, I just, I really hate that for some reason, every single person on Mets Twitter is just hammering home the fact that the Mets got fleeced in this trade by the Yankees for Miguel Castro, who was objectively fine forever. Like, Miguel Castro was never one of our higher leverage relievers. Miguel Castro was never someone who came in the game and every single Mets fan was like, ah, thank God, Miguel Castro, one of the best relievers in baseball. Like, this is just revisionist history on what happened in this trade. And the Mets bullpen need the lefty. It's ridiculous that people are just absolutely chastising this trade so much because Joely Rodriguez has allowed a couple guys on base early in the season and gave up one home run to objectively the, one of the best catchers in baseball. Yeah, like, I mean, the on. guy that is a perennial all-star at the position. So, yeah, the Joely Goat thing... It's frustrating because I see why people are saying it. Yeah, it doesn't make logical sense, but just like, just relax for a second. It's April 17th as we're recording this, April 18th, hopefully you're listening to it. There's a lot of season left, a lot of season. A lot of season left, and the Mets did fight back. It was a little bit too late. Starling Marte crushed a two-run home run. Absolutely love Starling Marte. That guy's got a lot of juice. He's playing good baseball. He's hitting the ball, putting in play, stealing bases. He's brought another, again, we talked about Jeff McNeil bringing a different angle to this team. Starling Marte brings a different angle to this team that this Mets roster has lacked massively in the past before, which is speeding a little bit of pop in that bat. Absolutely, and then we had the Dimebacks on the ropes after that Marte home run. Francisco Lindor worked a very casual four-pitch walk, and then Pete Alonso comes up, as the go-ahead run with a pitcher who can't find the strike zone. And he swung at the first pitch. He rolled over on a fastball, a cutter, a sinker. I don't remember exactly what it was. I don't remember if it was Ian Kennedy or Joe Mantiply by this point. I think this was Ian Kennedy at this yeah, point. Yeah, he was a professional reliever by all means, but not exactly someone who strikes fear into your into the opposing hitters. There's a reason he's on the Diamondbacks and yeah. the better team didn't pick him yeah, up. Yeah, of course. I mean, he's fine, but whatever. He jumped on the first pitch, a fastball that wasn't exactly not hittable, but I wouldn't call it something in Pete's power alley. And Pete, you know, comes up like a laboratory retriever. Like, he wants to do everything to make us love him every single second of the day. Instead of taking a pitch on the other half and sending it to right center and keeping the inning alive, he just easily rolled it over, ground ball, inning over. Yeah, sucked the, the first air pitch. out of the stadium like a balloon. It went from ruckus and a madhouse to, man, I think a funeral is about to happen. This game might be over. It got really quiet. Really quickly, a lot of, again, a lot of angry Mets fans. It was This kind of felt like a theme for I was sitting around people who were just saying such horrible things about a guy who's been so good this year. I tell you, this is what you get for getting those tickets down low. You got to go upstairs back with the real fans. I know, right? I'm getting I'm getting around uh, some Yankee Met fans around here. It feels like where you don't do everything right exactly 100% of the time. It goes, you're, you're terrible. But we know that Pete's been great. And, of course, we'll talk about his performance in Game 3. That was it, though. That's We lost. Yeah, we lost that one. There's nothing else about it. We played not well, and the Diamondbacks just played a little bit better. Yeah. But still, positives to take out of it. Carrasco looked great. McNeil playing good defense. Marte swinging the bat. Well, like, there were still good things about this game. It's just... It's hard to win when you score two runs against anybody. Definitely, and this was a game where you really felt the loss of Nemo and Canha, the some of the big fiber in this Mets roster. Like basically, you for a whole series, you lost two of your top three on base percentage guys on your in your entire lineup, and it's very hard to make that up otherwise with the likes of Travis Jankowski, Matt Reynolds, right fielder, Nick Plummer got got on this roster, got an at bat Sunday, but like it's just significantly worse players got reps and at bats than Brandon Nimmo and Mark Canha during this game, and it's obvious. And not that those players are bad, they're just not as good as Brandon Nimmo and Mark Canha. We know that. You can watch the, you've watched these guys play for the last two weeks. Brandon Nimmo played for the last five years. Like these are 
quality baseball players who do many things well, especially at the plate, especially in terms of getting on base. And this Mets lineup needed that on Saturday. It just lacked it. Just didn't get it. Couldn't get anything going. Zach Allen was good, too. Yeah, quite good. Going to run into that. You can't win every single game. You're not going to win all 162. Mets are still in good position, but it definitely did leave a little bit of uh, uneasiness going into game three of the series on Sunday, Easter Sunday where we had David Peterson making his first start of 2022 for the New York Mets going up against the Diamondbacks, and uh, Umberto Castellanos, Mm -hmm. I believe was his name, who I can't even believe this guy's in the majors. Again, I'm sorry. (laughs) We wanted to talk about how Chase Anderson had nothing last year. (laughs) Umberto Castellanos throws 86, and nothing breaks. There's nothing, honestly, good about him. And the Mets, for some reason, couldn't hit him to start the game, which was crazy. But let's talk about David Peterson, because I know you got a lot about him. He's looking pretty good yeah I'm on, I'm on a schedule now where I throw out a tweet every single time David Peterson pitches because he's pitching really well he's doing things that Mets fans should be aware of he went four and a third innings on Sunday allowing three hits giving up two walks and four strikeouts and I know the four and a third innings 80 pitches doesn't really seem that great he only allowed three hard hit balls and he would have gotten through this fifth inning I'd say with ease if there wasn't for some crazy weather going on the fourth inning of this game that basically blew a ball away from Starling Marte it was a weird mix of tons of wind and tons of sun. It made the outfield and city field while it was very cold. It was untenable conditions to play baseball. Sarg Marte lost a, uh, a fly ball, and then there was just a ball that Francisco Lindor could have gotten to and could have gotten out that he ended up not getting to. It was okay. Peterson worked out of it, didn't give up any runs. But if not for that tough inning, we would have seen Peterson breeze through the fourth and the fifth and be able to stick in this game a little longer. But again, what he's doing to, for this bottom of the Mets rotation is incredibly, incredibly important right now. He threw plenty of sliders in this game. Third most he's ever thrown a game in his major league career. 30% versus 33% four-seam fastballs and just 19% sinkers, an adjustment that I talked about a lot at the beginning of last year. That slider had five whiffs on nine swings and five more called strikes for a 42% CSW rate. And we use that term a couple times for people new here. That's your called strikes plus whiffs. All the strikes that you are getting, that's the rate of it. The biggest improvement that Peterson has made this year that seems like it's sticking is velocity. Every single pitch is at least up a tick, and that four-seam fastball broke 96 miles an hour on Sunday for just a third time in his young career. Which is huge for a guy who like had been sitting in kind of like the low 90s. Yes, and it's also huge for a guy who's literally huge, like Peterson, who has such incredible extension at home plate, because his perceived velocity is always going to be a mile or two higher, a mile or two per hour higher than what it actually gets. So that 96 comes on hitters. It feels like 98 at the plate, because he's releasing that ball three inches from your face because he's a giant. This is incredible for David Peterson. The fact that he's shown that now he might actually have league average stuff and above league average velocity means that he's going to be able to get major league hitters out consistently. And again, he's not getting through the line for the third time. Not ready for that yet. Similar to Tyler McGill. We're not going to expose these guys to that. But what David Peterson is doing for this team right now without Jacob DeGrom and without Taiwan Walker is monumentally important and he deserves a lot of props. Yeah, I was thoroughly impressed with the performance that David Peterson had after coming off of a really good performance again in Philadelphia, which definitely was a much stronger lineup. He's showing Mets fans. He's showing the the coaches, everybody. He's got the chops. He's looking like the David Peterson we saw in 2020 that really impressed a lot of people, not just for the Mets, but around baseball of like, hey, it's a good little pitcher right here for the Mets. Good, good left-handed guy that they can go to every five days. He's filling in very nicely in this rotation. Was huge for us. And then piggyback Trevor Williams right off of him. Mm-hmm. Did pretty well as well. Like the Mets bullpen was great this game. Mm-hmm. We have to talk about that if we want to talk about the batting game two. They're great in game three. You said Williams was great. He didn't even finish. <laughs> he got through Peterson's last inning, but then gave up a couple hits. Chasing Shreve, uh, then through two innings afterwards. And I kind of like chasing Shreve as a two-inning guy. It's kind of nice that he's becomes he's become very comfortable in that role. And of course, our guy Drew Smith just won't allow anybody to score around on him. Knock, knock, knock. So good. He's so good. 
And as good as the pitching was, it did take a while for the Mets to score, which was frustrating. Again, I mentioned Umberto Castellanos being just so horrible. He's just not good at all. I'm disgusted by even talking about him giving up no earned runs, which is insane. No. But the bats eventually did break through. We got some luck here and there. We got some power. The Mets did enough. Yeah, finally in the sixth inning of this game, again, a couple innings after we lost Umberto Castellanos, who walked three Mets and only struck out one in four innings of work, while the Diamondbacks so made... The most unnecessary diving catches I've ever seen in this in just an entire weekend series in my entire life. But again, sixth inning, we finally broke it open. Eduardo Escobar got a nice cheapo double that because uh, the guy just he just gets doubles every single time he plays baseball. Hustle double, hustle, hustle double. double. Yeah, but it was a little like a little dinker over the first baseman. But that's it doesn't matter. Double in the score sheet, got the first run in, and then our old friend Oliver Perez came in with Crazy. with with the man with uh, Escobar on and Dom Smith coming up. Dom worked a very nice walk against a lefty, which is something that we don't see him do very often, which is something I'd love to see him do more if he's going to be in this lineup every day. And then finally, we've been beating this drum for weeks, a great use of the bench. After Dom Smith, J.D. Davis came up to face Oliver Perez rather than Travis Jankowski and roped an RBI single into left center field. That's exactly what you have to do when you have one of the biggest benches in baseball and a guy like Oliver Perez on the mound. You have a guy like J.D. Davis sitting on the bench. Yeah, Oliver Perez is 40 years old. He was traded to the Mets like, 16 years ago or whatever it was like it's so long that this guy's been in the league and the fact that JD Davis like you said crushes left-handed pitching was on the bench it was really really nice to see Buck go to him because there have been times this year you guys have heard us talk about it where we go why is the pinch hitter coming up in this situation he finally went to it and it worked out hopefully this also leads JD to get a little hot because he's been on the schneid a little bit here hopefully that knocked him off it. yeah definitely and as the as the DH options on this team have not exactly blown us away JD is someone who could rise to the top and I'm not I don't want to give up on JD yet because the guy's still still a really damn good hitter and JD Davis made another very interesting play right after he hit this single James McCann came up after him and hit a pretty regular-looking fly ball to left field, something that wasn't deep but also wasn't shallow, just enough for Dom Smith to think he could score. Crazy man Joey Cora, of course, is going to send him on that because I'm not wasting an opportunity for a sacrifice fly. Now, no no, sirree, Bob. It was a bang-bang sack fly. It looked like Dom timed it up pretty well, but there was kind of a sense afterwards that there, were, there was maybe the chance that Dom left early, which is something that Dom Smith would do. He's a very excitable, excitable baseball player. So as this was going on, it looked like there was a chance that Dimebacks were going to appeal at third base. J.D. Davis, heavy play, just dances off first base. He stands 30 feet off the bag and kind of starts like making moves towards second. Oliver Perez, hearing yell from his infield, as any baseball player has ever been trained to do, steps off, throws it to a shortstop. Rookie Geraldo Perdomo has... I, I, He's a, he looks like a fine player. He does some things well. He also does some things not well. He's been known more for his defense as he's come through the league. Thought he made a heady play of himself and was like, wait, we want to appeal. I have the ball. I don't want to tag J.D. Davis and create a new baseball play because I know that kills a chance for an appeal. I'm going to throw it back to third base and appeal right now. But little did he know that the second you make a baseball play after a sacrifice fly, the chance for an appeal is all over. So now the appeal was dead. Dom run counts. And J.D.'s on second base because nobody tagged him. <laughs> It was very much a good, uh, I'm going to drop one of our favorite words of the last few episodes, a microcosm yeah. for Arizona Diamondbacks baseball. They look very confused. <laughs> they look very lost. They look like they don't really know what they're doing all the time. And that kind of falls on the manager's shoulders a little bit here. I know they're a young team, but boy, oh boy, do they play some just bad baseball. Yeah, it wasn't great. I, I, again, another microcosm for this is our buddy Drew uh, watched the game on Friday. Drew knows baseball. He likes baseball. He scored the game-winning walk-off run in our softball game on Saturday morning, so... Big what else game. can we say about the guy? But he texted us in a group chat. Was like, 
these Diamondbacks don't really seem to know what's going on out there. And I was like, no, they certainly do not. <laughs> but if you want to talk about Microcosm again, third, t- third time in as many sentences. After this game, J.D. Davis credited Buck Walter for highlighting many of the rules, especially this appeal rule specifically in spring training, and letting the team know that if there was ever a 50-50 shot at an appeal, just give yourself up. Because the second that a, a, a different baseball play is made, you lose the opportunity to appeal. That's such such a Buck Walter oh, thing to do. Yeah. And I remember I was watching ESPN broadcast, I think, a few years ago when Buck was you know still coaching for the Orioles. And I asked my dad, I was like, can you slide in the middle of a base path to break up a double play if a guy's fielding the ball? You're already going to be out. You can give yourself up, and you save the guy at first. And within seconds, they're like, Buck Showalter actually has been telling his players to slide in the middle of the base. If you can break it up, it doesn't matter. You're still breaking up the play. You're out, and you save the guy at first from being a double play. So these are the little things that I'm sure the the old heads that are mm-hmm. definitely ride or die for Buck oh, yeah. are just absolutely gleaming about and you know what i'm gleaming about it too that is a heads up play made a difference in this game made a massive difference in this game and you just saw how excited the Mets dugout got after this happened there was a video that sny post of tomas nido just throwing his head back and exalting laughter bellowing laughter with the ski cap on just losing his mind to the fact that the Mets just stole a run and were able to keep a player in scoring position afterwards a, a win-win play for the new york mets it's also like super disrespectful to just like laugh yeah. at the time impacts like that. They're like, you idiots. You guys don't know. Nice try. Baseball players, wink. <laughs> yeah. And then let's talk about the icing on the cake here. Pete Alonso mm-hmm. in the DH spot, hitting his third home run of the year. Yep. All three home runs have come in the DH spot. I'm interesting. I don't know if you guys are listening, but in the DH <laughs> spot might be something we might want to look at. What's weird though is Pete in the DH spot handcuffs this team even more than normal. Why do you say that? Because now you can't really make the substitutions that you would. Like if Dom's facing a lefty, the only other option really to face the lefty is J.D. Davis. I don't really think we feel great about J.D. Davis playing first base right now. I don't feel that bad about it. I mean, it's not the worst. That doesn't sound like the end of the world. It's not great. But How much how much first base has he played? <laughs> yeah, I'd rather him first than third. Okay, that's fair. <laughs> I mean, and like you're not going to put Robinson Cano because it's just another lefty. Like it definitely takes a little bit of like that weird lefty-righty versatility, but also if Pete's swinging like this, we probably won't have that many games where we need to make big decisions about whether or not Dom Smith or J.D. Davis should be facing a righty or a lefty in that moment. Yeah, for sure. And this, I won't even call attention to this specific home run from Pete Alonso because this was a similar pitch that I chastised him just a few minutes ago for going after in Game 2 of this series, but it was just a little bit lower. And that being a little bit lower puts it right in Pete's wheelhouse. He just dropped down and caught the barrel in this ball had a very slim 17-degree launch angle relative to most of Pete's home runs and just, just scooted out of the stadium over the left field wall. He just got out in a freaking hurry. And it just shows how good Pete Alonso is with the bat. Like, the fact that he went down and golfed the ball nowhere near his wheelhouse, able to get barrel, and just got out of the stadium in moments. The guy, this guy does unbelievable things to the plate night in, night out, and I'm really happy to watch it. Yeah, no, he's, he's such a good hitter. I love that Pete Alonso is a part of this New York Mets team. He makes this so much better. He's just one of the perennial power hitters in all of baseball, and now he actually has the ability to drive in runs because we have dudes on base in front of him. I love the construction of how this team's looking right now. Quick shout-out for the Mets-up gambling boys. I believe we shouted out, me specifically, the Pete Alonso lead MLB and RBIs bet preseason. And as we sit here on Sunday, April 17th, Monday, April 18th, when you guys are listening to this, Pete Alonso leads the National League with 14 RBIs. Not a bad start for the kid. Also, you would remember the boys told you to bet the over on the Bassett wins. I think it was, what, 10 or 11, whatever it was. It was 10 and a half. 2-0 in his first two starts. Just saying the boys might know a little something Not bad. <laughs> Not bad. Great way to end the series. Mm-hmm. A nice series win. Should have been a sweep. Mm-hmm. But hey, the Mets are looking at, what, 7-3 and three now? Yes. 
seven and three top of the national league east we know it's extremely early and it really doesn't mean anything but the way the mets have been playing compared to the rest of this division they're kind of separating themselves very early as in a team that's just playing some cleaner baseball a little more consistent baseball top to bottom than everyone else in this division in 10 games Again, I know, Mets, I talked about. We need a little humble pie here, but I'm going to get hyped. Yeah, I'm going to get hyped. The Mets still have not played one team that's fundamentally sound yet. So I'm going to wait for this series that I'd like to transition to previewing right now. Hold on a sec. I just want to say, you told me to watch out for the Phillies, so don't throw them in the same grouping as the Diamondbacks and Nationals I didn't throw them in the same grouping as I hold a baseball here, just out of (laughs) of just just fucking around. But the Phillies are a very good team who have good starting pitching and a loaded lineup. They're just not fundamentally sound. That those Both okay. of those can be true. Those are both true at the same time. I think it's obvious after watching them play for three games. I mean, yeah, they got smacked by the Marlins this series, which was just absolutely did. great to see. And Zach Wheeler, but we couldn't hit, got annihilated by the Miami Marlins. by the Marlins. They got absolutely destroyed. But hey, now we have a real test. Yes. And this is something that me and you both circled mm-hmm. very early on in the season, especially with how the Mets were playing. The Giants, mm-hmm. this is a real aptitude test yes. here as to whether or not the Mets actually know what they're doing because the Giants for sure know what they're doing. They are probably the number two smartest team in all of baseball right behind the Rays, I think you could say. I'd almost call them, they're, they're, they're in a tier between the Rays, Giants, Dodgers as the smartest teams in baseball right now. Probably And maybe the yeah. Brewers, maybe a half step behind or, or just with them. But that is the, uh, that's the pantheon of baseball intelligence. It's going to be a really great test to see how the Mets can stack up with a team that is a little bit injured right now doesn't exactly have their A lineup ready to go, but they play smart and efficient defense, and they're going to throw some very interesting pitchers at us this week. Yeah, and it gets started on Game 1 on Monday, where we got Tyler McGill going up against Alex Cobb. Alex Cobb, a guy who you have raved and hooted all about all offseason, about someone that the Mets should have been in on. I, I think they probably were. It's yeah. just the Giants gave him a little more money, and he's really good. Like I know the name might not instill fear into your body, but... When the guy's throwing 98 and has the pitches that he's had this this year, he's looking pretty disgusting. This is also a huge, huge test for Tyler yes. McGill, who we saw make two starts right against the Giants last mm-hmm. year. One good, the second one not so yes. good. I actually think it was the opposite. It was the first one not so good, second one quite good. Okay, this is a huge test yes. for him, though, as we've seen him pitch so well early on the season. The Giants, the way that they do platoons and... Well, bat path, swing path, yes. which you told me all about. Like, this is going to be huge to see how they react to Tyler McGill. Yeah, just to even to, um, expand on what you just said for a second, Robert Lohr of Baseball Prospectus, right before the season started, dropped an article, uh, some research that he did that he found that while the Giants were platooning a lot last year based on handedness, like the most obvious platoon that the average baseball fan will see and be like, oh, that's smart, that makes sense. The Giants were actually fine-tuning their lineups to create situations where their hitters bath pads were more advantageous against the other pitchers pitch shapes and approach angles and more specifically what this means is that just to break it down if they're facing more of a sinker baller with a curveball and a changeup, they're going to look for more hitters with the the type of uppercut low ball hitters that you like to see in baseball and when they were facing pitchers that kind of had more velocity writhing fastballs pitches on top of the zone they would seek out pitchers with flatter bat pads especially pitchers with sliders because you get a flatter bat path it's much easier to hit that slider than a guy who's uppercutting it. So the Giants are doing things. They're basically playing a different sport than everybody else in the league right now. So it's going to be really fascinating to see how McGill specifically lines up against this team. As long as the rain holds out, your boy will be there, mm-hmm. uh, courtesy of Carlos Rodon, which is a weird sentence to say. But I will be rooting for the Mets while sitting in enemy territory, that is for sure. Absolutely. And after this, Tuesday night, in one of the better pitching matchups you're going to see in all of baseball all of this year, Max Scherzer versus Logan Webb, which... 
I think I'm going to be at that one just because I, I'm not going to miss a chance to watch those two pitchers. That's the pitching guy over here. Yeah, it's going to be a pretty, pretty sick game. Logan Webb, a name that kind of flung onto the scene last year as one of the better pitchers in baseball, looking good again this year, going up against you know the older guy who's still really good at pitching, still a Cy Young candidate. It's going to be interesting to see how the Giants also react to Scherzer as someone that saw him a little bit last year playing in the National League West, mm-hmm. and Scherzer not necessarily being at his sharpest, mm-hmm. But still looking good. Yes. And then we move on to Wednesday. This is a four-game series also. Everyone be mind you, uh, be aware. So we're going we're gonna to get to know the Giants very, very well. And that brings us to Wednesday where another incredible pitching matchup. We got Chris Bassett versus Carlos Rodon. Mark's boy, of course. Yeah, Carlos Rodon, man. He's also looked so good yeah. this year. He's looked disgusting. So this is going to be a game where a real pitcher's duel, I think, might happen. Where Bassett and Rodon just kind of go back and forth until we find out who wins at the end because it's going to be a pitcher's duel and both these teams are really good. And two pitchers I was screaming for the Mets to, to get in this offseason after the lockout ended between Alex Cobb and Carlos Rodon. And then a, It'd be great to make you look stupid oh, and smack them this I, series. It would be great. What a great time for the James Jinx to come to fruition here and both those guys get <laughs> annihilated. It'd be sick. Yeah. And then uh, finally, the getaway day, Thursday, matinee, Carlos Carrasco versus Anthony DiSclefani. Another good one. Which... Yeah, it's a good one. Kind of, uh, you know, the middle of the rotation for both of these teams here. Neither of these guys are going to make you go, whoa, got to stop and watch this matchup. But both very professional pitchers. Mm-hmm. Very professional pitchers. And just to watch in this series, this those first two games there between McGill, Cobb, and Scherzer Webb, you're going to see... You're going to see some great stuff on display. Alex Cobb has been sitting 90 miles an hour with his splitter this year, which is something that basically shouldn't be allowed, especially from a guy who <laughs> doesn't really have the livest arm in Alex Cobb. To have the velocity and the life in his pitches that the Giants have already goaded at him is shocking. And I do want to point out two other guys I want Mets fans to watch out for in this series. First, Tyro Estrada, which I didn't know. I don't think anyone thought I was going there. but <laughs> I will say, I'll have my one comment on Tyro Estrada. The man's been shot, and he kept the bullet in him for like six months. Yeah, that's right. A ball player right there, but... Tyro Estrada has gotten a shot to play early on this season with Tommy Lestella going on the IL with an Achilles injury. Evan Longoria has been out. Lamont Wade's been out. I feel like there's another Giants middle infielder that's been out, but it's, it, I'm, I'm missing it right now. But he's been playing mostly every day. He's driving in runs. He's hitting in the middle of the order. He's having very good at-bats. He's already hit the hardest ball of his career. Tyro Estrada is a very good baseball player who the Giants basically just got for free last year off the scrap heap, hung out in their 40-man roster, got a couple reps in August, September as their injuries mounted up, but he probably will be a pain in the ass. Guys, great play discipline. Another guy I'm going to point attention to, a reliever that I talked about a lot in the offseason, Mr. Camilo Doval, just probably pound for pound the best stuff in all of baseball. He can get it up to about 102 miles an hour with wicked cutting action and has a slide that's just absolutely to die for. I, I want Mets fans to get a close-up look at Camilo Duvall and just be like, what the fuck is going on in San Francisco right now? And then to go on like the complete opposite, you have Tyler Rogers yeah. who throws funky submarine underhand at like 78 miles an Remember hour. Remember how and, like, bad he made the Mets look last year? does that to everybody his stuff is just it's it's like he's throwing a wiffle ball out there or a blitz ball whatever it is it's just it's really really hard to hit they play really smart baseball also we got to mention Wilmer Flores coming back to City Field which Wilmer Flores will always have a special Mm -hmm. place in our heart I hope he goes over 25 this series or however many at-bats he gets I hope he doesn't get a single hit but hey Wilmer of course the Mets fans we love you we miss you and I want to talk about Joey Bart, too, mm-hmm. young catcher. Yeah, He's taken over for Buster Posey, of course. You guys know he's no longer there. He's having a really nice start to the mm-hmm. season. He was a very, very highly touted prospect, and he's finally starting to swing the bat at the major league level. Keep an eye out for him because he is a very, very good ball yeah, player. Yeah, he has massive power. Quick question about Flores before we wrap up here. Do you think the Mets are going to play his walk-up song, the Friends theme? Oh, man. I feel like they know, might. I, 
I think you give him one. Yeah. I think you give him one and then go back to yeah. just complete, <laughs> complete silence. Like, Wilmer deserves one clap, mm-hmm. one ovation, one friend's theme, and then we hope we pound your brains in. Yeah, Wilmer will get that ovation every single year that he plays a game in City Field for literally the rest of his life until he's invited back for Old Timers Day. And I will be clapping on Monday when he gets that bat as well. I'll clap on Tuesday, even though no one else will be clapping. I'm going to clap for Wilmer Flores. I'll clap at home. I don't care <laughs> where it is. Wilmer Flores on, is a Mets folk legend. He cried on the field. We'll never forget Twice. that. Twice. Twice. <laughs> in a week. God. What a beast. Mm-hmm. This is going to be, like we said, a very, very telling series. Yes. We hope the Mets come out on top, and I really do think that they can. Mm-hmm. It's just you are playing one of the best teams in baseball, one of the smartest teams in baseball, not that you're going to have to be perfect, but we can't be making little mistakes. You have to play clean-cut baseball like we saw the first few games of the National Series, like we saw a couple times in Philadelphia. Clean baseball will win you the games. Mets have a good team. The Giants don't have the big names, but boy, do they get a lot out of the guys that they do have. And the Mets are now going to be starting a run that started actually this weekend with 13 games in 13 days. That did start at the home opener on Friday. So length from the starting pitching is going to be important. Relievers getting efficient outs are going to be important, and the offense scoring enough runs to give our pitching staff a break is going to be very, very important against a very good team, the San Francisco Giants. Of course, if you guys are at the stadium and you see me or James say what's up, we're going to have Mets up stickers for you guys if you're interested in getting those, or if you just want to say hello and pick our brain a little bit, talk a little Mets baseball, make sure you stop us in the stadium, say hello. We're friendly, I promise. We will not bite. Super friendly. We like talking with, we like talking with Mets fans or any fans of that matter. That's probably, though, a good place to wrap up here. Episode number 84 of the Mets Up Podcast. If you guys are listening to us, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, drop us a five-star rating, drop us a review. It really does help grow the podcast. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, Mets Up. You'll be able to find us there. Drop James a follow on Twitter at Jeter Had No Range. Me, Mark Luino, Mark at Mark on Twitter. And that's where we'll wrap it up, guys. Thank you for listening. Thank you for watching. And we'll see you after the Giants series for episode number 85 of the Mets Up Podcast. Peace out. Peace out, guys. See you next time.